My first car was a 1961 black Volkswagen Beetle. It was, a, it didn't, it, it was that model, but it didn't look like that, all right? It, 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 it was well used by the time I got it in 1972, but it was my first car, so I thought it was a wonderful car, and there are a couple unique features about it that I have never forgotten through all the years of time. One of those is that early Volkswagens didn't have gas gauges in them. Uh, so you, you had no idea how much gas you were using all the way through that, except for the fact that there was a little lever on the floor uh, underneath the dash on the floorboard, and if you would just flip it over, it gave you an extra gallon when you ran out of gas to get you to a filling station so you could fill up the tank. <laughs> I learned the hard way, though, when you fill up the tank, if you don't flip the lever back, the next time you run out of gas, you really are out of gas. The other thing that was really unique about it was that the, the, the spare tire air pressure is what uh, powered the, the window washer canister. So the more you used your window washer fluid, the, the, the less air you ended up with in the spare. And I didn't realize that it was working that way. And so I'm, I'm driving down the road one day and I hear what sounds like lug nuts or rocks in my hubcap and I thought I better check this. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and as I was slowing down and pulling over the side of the road, this, this tire and wheel just flew right on by me, just sailing right down the, the middle of the road. I thought, well, that's really odd. And then it dawned on me, that's my tire that's going right down <laughs> the middle of the road there. And sure enough, it was. And, and so I went to get the spare out, and the spare's almost flat because all the air had been used to power the window washers. So I was able to retrieve the rogue tire and put it back on. It wasn't too damaged and it got home. But it, with my first car, I learned about flat tires and empty tanks in dramatic ways. Now that's life. Difficulties come at the most inconvenient, unexpected times. It's embarrassing to run out of gas. You say, how could I not have looked at the gas gauge? How could this happen? How could I have been so oblivious? It's frightening to have a flat tire in the middle of nowhere. Where? Why wasn't I better prepared for this kind of emergency? What, what am I doing out here? And, and I can't get this fixed. We seldom see the tough times coming in life. We never feel adequately prepared for life's emergencies. For high hopes to become reality in our marriages and homes, we must be committed to working through the tough times for the long haul. It's trite but true. Tough times never last, but tough marriages do. So how do we cope when we are stranded with the flat tire and empty tank moments in our marriages and life. Well, let me suggest just a few thoughts for you this morning to consider. Number one, set your course long before you get stranded. Set your course. The Apostle Paul writes three letters in the New Testament that we call the pastoral letters. They were written, two of them to Timothy and one to Titus, and they are written to young men who are in ministry, and Paul writes to them as a mentor, and he is describing to them and preparing them and helping set the course for the direction of their lives. He's wanting them to have great success as they lead in the body of Christ. And in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he gives him this just this incredible passage to keep his focus. Beginning in verse 9, it says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, all of us, all of us need to buy into this. This is full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. What a powerful thought 
Biblical hope, by the way, is not this wistful longing like we often use the word hope. It is assurance. Paul is saying, you put your assurance in the living God, not just God, but the living God. There is no one like him. And he's made salvation possible for all who believe. You follow him, Timothy. You stay the course with him, Timothy. Commit yourself first to the Lord, and then your marriage to the Lord, and then your kids to the Lord, and your family to the Lord, folks, for the long haul, and you'll make it. Set your course, as Paul instructed Timothy, so you do that in your own life. Let's suppose a pilot wants to go flying uh, some afternoon just for fun. Uh, he or she isn't going anywhere in particular. They're just going out to chase the clouds. They, they don't need to worry about setting a course because they're not going to a destination. They're just out having a good time. But let's suppose a pilot wants to go from point A to point B. Then the course becomes incredibly important. You're not going to make it to point D, B without a set course. Do you realize that it takes a lot of work through that whole journey to keep that airplane on course? Do you realize that if you left Bloomington, Indiana this afternoon and were flying to San Diego, California, and you were off just one degree, you'd miss San Diego by 30 miles. Now, that's, that, that's a lot. Just one tiny degree. If you married for the long haul, if you said, I do, then your destination was and is until death us do part. And if that's true in your life, then you have to be very diligent to stay on course. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of course corrections in that journey for you to stay on course. And remember, if you're just off by a degree, you're going to miss your mark by a long shot. There'll be pockets of turbulence all along the way that'll toss you around like a pinball in an arcade. There will be storms that you'll have to fly around because to fly through them will tear you apart. And I don't care where you leave from and where you're headed to, it's not all sunshine along the way. So be committed to keeping your marriage on course. High hopes for any couple come when they put their hope in the living God and let Him guide their marriage on course. As a teenager, I read the uh, biography uh, written by Colonel Robert L. Scott about his uh, exploits as one of the Flying Tigers uh, uh, World War II ace. I was, I was so enamored with that book that when I found uh, one of those license plates you put on the front of your car that said, God is my co-pilot, I bought it and I put it on my front bumper and it was there for quite a while until I, until I really got to thinking about what, what does that communicate when I say God is my co-pilot? That basically says, I'm in charge. God is just along for the ride and in case there's an emergency. I took it off the front of my car. I didn't want to communicate that. You know, it, it, the reverse should be true. God is my pilot. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that's flying me. I'm the one that's along for the ride. If your marriage and family are going to survive for the long haul, let him pilot you home. High hopes are hopes that have gotten off the ground, and that, and that won't happen if you're in charge, and God is just along for the ride. And by the way, if you, just, if you just want God when it's emergency time, that doesn't work either. If he's not flying, your marriage will likely veer off course, and you may never get it back and will miss your destination by miles. I want you to hear from two of our long-term couples. They, 
They've been in it for the long haul. Um, Bob and Jean Johns uh, have been married 70 years. As a matter of fact, we taped this on Wednesday of this past week, and, and that was their actual 70th anniversary. They came in to tape this on their anniversary. And Bob will be uh, 90 years old this coming, uh, uh, coming Friday, so they have a lot of wisdom to share. And Gary and Dolores Clogson have been married for 57 years, and they're sharing their story as well. I, w- I just want you to listen to the wisdom that, that comes from those who have set the course and stayed the course for the long haul. Marriage for us, uh, when we were first married, uh, from a number of perspectives, was a bit of a struggle, financially, for example. Uh, We met at a Bible college in Springfield, Missouri in 54. I had to drop out after one semester because of, let's say, some budget issues, meaning I ran out of money. (laughs) But we, we became acquainted enough with each other to know that God had led us together to be husband and wife. And so in 55, in November, we became husband and wife. And as I said, there were some struggles, but God led us. We always honored Him, and we attempted to to be faithful to Him in all aspects. Not that we were always perfect, obviously we're not, but I think He honored well, we were both in high school at the time, and uh, a friend, a friend of mine, uh, had made a date with a with a girl that was a friend of Jean's, and uh, so he asked her to. Uh, we'd like to double date if she had a friend that uh, uh, would uh, go with me. So uh, it happened to turn, turned out to be Jean, which I, how unfortunate. <laughs> So we, uh, we doubled, they didn't, and uh, we used to go skating at the skating rink. She, she liked skating real well. So we dated for what? Three years. Three years, yeah. We were high school sweethearts. I was a sophomore and he was a senior. After we were married, uh, when I was growing up, I came from a, uh, a struggling family. I had always wished, I had always hoped that one of these days, I would have a nice home. I'd like to have a bathroom in it. I would like to be able to uh, take a nice shower at least once a week. So anyway, after we were first married, I was hoping that one of these days, with the Lord's help, we could have a nice little home to raise our children in. I don't think we had much of an idea what, what marriage entailed, really. As far as marriage, you just do you were in love and and the war was coming and you wanted to get married. We did before uh, he left to, to go to the army. And we were married three months before he went into the service, which was the army. When our oldest daughter was six months old, Gary had been working as a little factory that closed and I went each day pushing my baby and finding pop bottles, which at that time could be sold for money. Every day, I found enough pop bottles to buy baby food. We never went hungry. My baby never went without a meal, but it was like manna from heaven. Each day, God supplied what we needed. And I'll never forget that. 
I often say I've had several different types of jobs in my life, but being a mother was the one I enjoyed, and a grandmother, and a great-grandmother that I enjoyed the most. I used to pray as a little girl when I went to bed and I'd hold my doll, that when I woke up my doll would be alive. And that was all I, my biggest dream was a family. <laughs> That's the biggest gift I can imagine that God's given me. We're from the old generation, and you just didn't go file for divorce. Um, we just worked through it. We had our problems, little difficulties and misunderstandings and little spats, but we never had anything really major. I guess the word divorce, I can't even remember ever being a word that my mind even understood what that would have meant. It was not something that I even entertained as an out or a possibility. I just never even thought about that. This was something that I thought was forever and ever. If I was advising a young couple today, if I was counseling a young couple today, it's what I call the three C's, and that's compatibility, communication, and compromise, because that's what I think it takes. And also marriage, it doesn't matter if you've been married two years, five years, 50 years, or 70 years. It's something, if it's successful, that you, you work at. It's not actually work, maybe, but compliment each other and uh, tell each other you love them and uh, just make the other person feel good. If you have found the partner that God has chosen for you, that you allow God to be a continuing part of that relationship and that you rely on Him to continue to be the major partner in that relationship. And I, I can't say that enough, uh, that when you leave God out, you leave out the important ingredient that makes a successful marriage. There's a great deal of wisdom in those two marriages. There are a lot of others in this congregation who could tell you similar stories and be a great model. What, what, what I'm simply saying is that set the course from the very beginning and then stay the course through time. What else uh, can, we, can we see? Well, here's something else I think you need to realize, and that is expect to be stranded somewhere along the way. And so prepare for the inevitable. I wish I could tell you that everything was going to go well, but it won't. There will be flat tires and empty tanks along the way, so prepare for the inevitable, you'll, you'll be stranded somewhere. I, I don't know, what, what are you keeping in your trunk for those inevitable emergencies? I know some people who have a can of fix-a-flat uh, in the car, you know, if they get a flat tire, uh, a few tools is, is handy to have, uh, uh, maybe a pair of vice grips or, or pliers or, or one of those screwdrivers that has several different blades so that you can use those. Fresh batteries for your flashlight, which assumes that you do keep a flashlight in your car for emergencies. Uh, a blanket for the colder weather, uh, a book to read while you wait for roadside assistance to show up. And I'm not talking about the owner's manual in the glove box. I'm talking a book that's really interesting to read that will at least help you uh, be entertained while you're waiting. Um, keep a pocket knife either in your pocket or in the car so that if you are in an accident and you can't get your seatbelt released, you'll have some way of cutting the seatbelt so that you can get out. Uh, keep uh, bandages, ointments, and a bottle of aspirin or some, some kind of uh, medications like that in the car. I know folks who keep a small fire extinguisher in the trunk just for emergencies. All good things 
to, to keep there. But here's what I want you to remember. Such items won't prevent you from being stranded. They'll just make being stranded a bit more tolerable. You see, there's nothing you can do to prevent some things from happening in life. We live in a broken world, and so tough times are going to come. Now, there are times when we suffer because of our own choices. If you choose to be unfaithful to your spouse, then don't blame anyone else, including God, when your marriage falls apart. If you cheat your boss at your job and you lose your job as a result, then don't blame anyone else, including God, when your loss creates fear, stress, and anxiety in your home and family. You know, use some sense. There are times when you make choices and decisions that come back to haunt you, but it's nobody's fault but your own. So we, we need to take responsibility for those kinds of choices. But the majority of things that we face, the majority of the difficulties and tough times just happen in life beyond our control. So how do we handle that? What, what do we load in our trunks to be ready for that? Well, Paul goes on when he's talking to Timothy, and he gives him these, these great nuggets of wisdom, and they're in verses 11 and 12. And this is what Paul says. He says, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. And, and Timothy's probably about 30 or 35 when he writes this. Not terribly young, but young enough that people would say, well, what do you know about life? He said, but you, you, Timothy, you set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Five incredible tools that every Christian ought to have in his or her toolbox, but especially in our marriages that we need to live by and keep for those emergency moments that happen on a regular basis. Because I'm convinced if you live this way, you'll weather the storms better. Paul says, these need to be heard as commands. So as Timothy was said to set an example, we ought to live this way too. He says, be an example in speech. And by a speech, he's not talking about a sermon. He's talking about everyday speech. What you say in your business conversations. What you say in your casual conversations. What you say in your family conversation. Paul is encouraging Timothy to speak words of encouragement, to speak truthful words, to speak in a way that his speech is always under control, that it's a positive thing. Proverbs 16, 24 says, kind words are like honey sweet to the soul, and healthy for the body. Make sure your words are that way. Guard your speech. Guard your life. Set an example in life. This word would be better translated behavior or conduct. It's your actions that speak of who you really are. Love. It, this is the word uh, agape, love, God's love. It, it is basically seeking the best for those that you love in your household and outside the household, for that matter as a Christian. Faith, that means trusting God and letting Him lead your life. And love and faith are these two pillars upon which we build our lives. Proverbs 3, 3 says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You see, these are, these are to be integral to who we are and how we live. And then Paul says, Timothy, you set an example in purity. And the word purity here describes moral behavior, that it's virtuous, innocent, honorable, uncorrupted. In the midst of a society that was dominated by Roman society and Roman government and, 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 a, and a society that had degraded marriage so much, Paul is saying to Timothy, you set an example of moral purity. Now, if, if you are thinking about compromising your marriage, you're thinking about stepping out on your spouse 
you're thinking about making a decision that you will regret for the rest of your life. Before you make that choice, would you please sit down and read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and be reminded of what God expects of us and the devastation that comes when we live in a state of impurity. Proverbs 5.15, the wise King Solomon puts it so poetically like this. He says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Don't go off looking for love in other places and other people. You be satisfied with the one you love and who should love you. May I suggest that these five virtues best prepare you and your family for whatever comes. When your everyday speech encourages your spouse and children, when your conduct is genuine and consistent with who you profess to be, when you truly love others as God has loved you, when your faith and your trust rests in God alone, and when your moral behavior is seen as honorable and uncorrupted, then, then you'll be able to weather the storms. You see, these are virtues for every Christian at every stage and at every age of life. They are the non-negotiables of who we are, but when we live like this, your marriage and your home can survive the storms. Now, that's assuming that both people in the marriage want to make it work. You may desperately want to make it work, but if your spouse doesn't, even living like this can't keep it together. But if you both are trying your best, and living like this, you'll weather the storms that come along. Here's another piece of advice, and that is ask for help when you're stranded. So what do you do when you find yourself stranded along the roadside? You call for help. Don't you? Most people have cell phones anymore. Pick up the cell phone and call for help, and hopefully a tow truck will be en route very shortly to help you <laughs> in your emergency. When your marriage or your family seems stranded, ask for help. Don't be stubborn and hard-headed. Don't try to do it on your own. Ask. And the first person you ask is God. You pray. Trying to survive the tough moments in marriage without prayer is like jumping off the Titanic without a life jacket or a lifeboat in sight. Ask. God wants to help. God wants your marriage to survive. Ask Him to help you get through that. And secondly, seek out wise, trusted Christian friends who give you honest answers and listen to their advice. They want what's best for you. If they truly love you, they'll be honest with you because they want you to succeed. And thirdly, don't run from the church, run to the church. Some people are embarrassed by what happens in their life. They think, oh, I'm not going to go back to church. I don't want people to know I'm imperfect. Well, welcome to the crowd. We're all imperfect, and I'm here to tell you for the most part, if you've dropped the ball, if you've fallen through the cracks, if life has become hard, if you've made some mistakes, you come here and let us help you because I know this family. And this family, more than anything, would like to help you recover and get better. I mean, isn't that what family does for family? Don't run from the church. Run to the church. Let us help. Ask for help. And here's the last thing. Know where you are when you get stranded. That may sound like a kind of a strange statement, but it's true. Know where you are when you get stranded. 
I, I discovered the importance of that truth when I took my flight test for my pilot's license in 1973. Uh, the FAA and exam examiner and I had flown around. He tested me on some of my basic maneuvers in southern Indiana, and then he said, I want to test your, your navigational skills using the radio equipment. And he said, set a course for Evansville. And so I dialed in the numbers and, and set on course, and I was ill-prepared for what he did a minute later. <laughs> he reached up and turned off all my radios. And then he said, now find Evansville. And I panicked for a moment. Uh, you know, that just, <gasps> I'm thinking, where am I? And, and, and I realized he, was not, he really didn't care if I knew how to get to Evansville using all the equipment in the plane. He wanted to know if I could stay on course through the tough times. Ever felt that way in life? You've set your course, you think everything in your life is going great, and then suddenly without warning, it's like somebody reaches up and turns off all the directional navigational signals that you've got, and there you are. And you kind of look around and you say, where in the world am I? You know, it's like this. You've just gotten a great review at work, and a month later, you're handed a pink slip. Or you celebrated your just, you just celebrated your fifth wedding anniversary, and it was a wonderful time, and a week later, you learn that your spouse is leaving you because they've been keeping company with somebody for the last six months, and you didn't know it. Or you're getting ready to take a cruise to celebrate your 40th wedding anniversary, and two days before you leave, you learn that you've got inoperable cancer, and you can't go. And have you ever noticed that those kinds of moments seem to come along right after the high points of life? Just when you think everything is going great, that's when it seems like the bottom drops out. In the Olympics last month, uh, gold medalist Chinese diver Wu Minjiao, and I'm not sure if I have pronounced her name correctly or not, but she's a, a very talented, wonderful diver. After she won gold, she was then informed that her grandparents had died a year before that and that her mother was battling for her very life against cancer. The news had been kept from her so she could compete at her best, but she was told just after being awarded her third gold medal. You know, it's really hard to celebrate victory when your tears are not tears of joy, but tears of heartbreak. It's in those moments when your emotions get stranded, that you desperately need to know where you are. Have you lost your directional signal? Do you feel like you have no idea where you are? I'm wondering if Mary and Martha felt that way when their brother Lazarus got sick. If you don't remember the story of these three dear friends of Jesus, then this afternoon go home and read the 11th chapter of the book of John and relive this story. But I, there, there's so much that's not told. The backstory is not told. And so I can only, I can only imagine what's going on here. I'm thinking in those days when Lazarus is so sick that Martha is attending to him because that was kind of her nature and character. And Martha, I, you can just hear her saying, Lazarus, you just hang on. Jesus is coming. I just know he's coming. He healed lots of people that didn't hardly even know him, and we've loved him for the three years that we've been following with him. He'll be here. Count on it. Days passed. Jesus didn't come. Lazarus gets weaker. Martha sits by his bedside, tears coursing down her cheeks, holding his hand. Hang on, Lazarus. Hang on, dear brother. Jesus is bound to come. He's, he's bound to come. And then Lazarus draws his last breath. That evening, he would have to be buried. But still, Martha doesn't panic. 
Because she knows that, well, there was the time when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus. Then there was the time when Jesus raised that young man. He, he, was, he was in the city of Nain. He was on his way out to be buried in the cemetery, and he raised him up. I know Jesus is going to come today, and this is going to be a miracle even greater and more dynamic than I thought. And so, as they prepared Lazarus' body for burial that evening, and as the people from the little community of Bethany began to pour into their house to pay their respects, she would slip away to the door. She'd scan the horizon looking for Jesus to be coming up the road to their home, and evening time came, and they buried Lazarus, and they sealed the tomb with the stone. No Jesus. The next day, no Jesus. The next day, no Jesus. The next day, no Jesus. Finally, on the fourth day, four days after Lazarus had died, here comes Jesus up the path to the house. Martha sees him coming. She runs to meet him, but I'm convinced that her mood was a mixture of frustration hurt, maybe even anger, disillusionment, disappointment, and she gets to Jesus on the road, and her words were these, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In that one sentence were so many unuttered questions. Where have you been, Jesus? How could you have abandoned us in our hour of need, Jesus? What did we do to deserve this when you helped so many people that didn't love you why would you abandon those of us who did love you? Jesus, are you really who I thought you were? All of those questions in that simple statement, if you had been here. And in all of his warmth and hope and tenderness, Jesus says to Martha, Oh, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, too late. Too late. He already stinks, Lord. It's too late. Why didn't you come when you could have helped? Now, you know the rest of the story. Jesus goes to the tomb, raises Lazarus from the dead, and it becomes, folks, it becomes the most incredible dynamic moment in the life of Jesus. This, this miracle is second only to his own resurrection from the dead that came that we celebrate in, in, in the story of Easter. And you see, here's the thing. Jesus did it in his time. Had Jesus done it when Martha wanted him to do it, she would have missed and we would have missed the most incredible moment of his earthly ministry. But because Jesus did it in his time, it is the greatest story of all. Second only to his own resurrection in his time. Now, when you have those empty tanks and flat tire moments in your life, you think, God, what did I do to deserve this? Lord, do you even know what's going on in my life? Lord, do you even care? Do you see where I am? I want you to know that God has not abandoned you. He knows where you are. He's going to respond in his time. The wise King Solomon writes in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, this beautiful passage, this, this poetic passage says there's a time for everything and a season for everything under the sun. And then, and then he goes into this, there's a time to be born and a time to die down that list. If you scroll down that list, my favorite verse is verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Oh, that's such high hopes. Solomon writes with such high hopes. He didn't say he has made the fun moments beautiful. Birthday parties, Christmas mornings, wedding receptions, the birth of a child. No, no, he said he has made everything beautiful in its time. Do you remember that time when you, when you were just an utter failure, a miserable failure? I, I can tell you that God can take that moment and in time bring beauty out of it. Have you ever lost a golden opportunity, lost a friend, lost a fortune? God can take those losses and in time bring beauty out of them. Have you ever stood alone by the side of a freshly dug grave after the funeral director and the minister and all your friends leave you and there you stand all alone wondering if life is worth going on after that moment? God can take that deepest of all sorrow and in time bring beauty out of it. He's the creator, which means he's the creator of beauty, and he is still creating, taking the hopeless threads of every difficult moment, every tear, every heartbreak, every disappointment, every setback, every discouraging word, and weaving them into a beautiful tapestry that makes our journey beautiful. With him, you will always know where you are. With him, you will never be alone. Don't ever give up on your marriage or your kids or yourself. You're in it for the long haul. Don't give up.